Good morning and welcome to Rising. I am back with Brianna Joy Gray for probably our last show of the year 2023. That's right. Let's make it count, Robbie. All right. <laughs> On that note, let's get into it. Uh, well, the leaders of Israel's war cabinet indicated they're looking to increase operations against Hezbollah against the country's northern border, signaling the opening of a new front and an expansion of the IDF's war into the broader region. Just yesterday, over the Red Sea, U.S. forces shot down 17 missiles launched by Yemen-based anti-Western Houthi rebels. The Iran-backed Iran group excuse me, has stepped up their attacks on the U.S. commercial and warships passing through the sea since October 7th. For Israeli newspapers, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has begun publicly discussing the absorption and, quote, voluntary migration of some one million Palestinians displaced by Israel's war to broader bordering nations, a notion which Jordan and Yemeni leaders have already rejected. Turkish President Erdogan laid into Netanyahu in a speech yesterday comparing his plans for Gazans to Hitler's plans for Jews. Let's watch. Gözlerimizin önünde 80 gün boyunca İnsanlığa ait tüm değerler kurşuna dizildi. Stadyumlarda İsrail'in Nazi kamplarını izledik değil mi? Bu nasıl bir iştir? Sizin itlerden ne farkınız var ya? Bu Netanyahu'nun yaptıklarının Hitler'den geri kalır yanı var mı? Yok. Batı'dan alıyor destekleri. Amerika'dan her türlü destek geliyor. Ve bütün bu desteklerle 20 bini aşkın Gazze'liyi bunlar ne yaptılar? Öldürdüler. Joining us now to weigh in on the state of things in the Middle East is host of Daniel Davis Deep Dive, retired Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis. Welcome back. Thanks for having me back. Help us understand the implications of the broadening conflict in the Middle East and what could happen next. Well, look, the, the, the most important thing for American national security interest is to prevent this war from escalating beyond the, the Gaza Strip. I mean, it's in our interest to get this war resolved and ended quickly, and I wish we would be putting a lot more effort in diplomatic uh, arrangement to find a way to end the war. But the most Absolutely, the biggest issue is to prevent it from going wider. And of course, we have the issue in the northern part of Israel with Hezbollah. We have the issue of U.S. troops in, in Iraq and Syria coming under almost daily barrages, issues in the Red Sea with Shep, and then now then this issue with Erdogan, you know, ramping up the rhetoric. And, and look, every one of these things is moving the, the whole course of the war in a bad direction. And it's something that we need to be putting a lot more diplomatic effort in getting a control of. Let's focus on the Red Sea for a moment. Uh, I know the Houthi rebels have essentially said to American forces, uh, and you know you can take this for whatever it's worth, but you know we're not your enemy. We're we're standing in solidarity with the Palestinians. We're not going to fight you, but you know because you are backing Israel, this this is why we're you know firing on your ships. Um, how so? The U.S. has responded by deflecting some of their uh, attacks. Of course, those rebels did take a ship um, captive, I believe, in November. Um, how, what? should U.S. security officials be thinking with respect to this aspect of the conflict? I mean, you know, we can't let them just fire on ships. Probably we got to use the we got to use that waterway. But, you know, what is the rational course of action available to us? Right. And they, they've actually said the Houthis have said actually more than that. They said that we don't have a beef with you. But if you attack us, if you actually strike our, our launch points and all that, 
then we will attack you in the region as well. They said, we don't we don't want to if we don't have to, but we will if you attack us. So there's a lot of people that are already saying, for the very reason you just mentioned there, we can't literally do nothing and allow them with impunity to continue to uh, interrupt shipping that in the whole region there. But if you take that course of action, then you have a significant shot of it at escalating this war and drawing more fire on American interests and other and personnel in the region. So it is a very difficult situation, but we also can't continue what we have, which is just shooting down all these drones, because as you may be aware, you know, some of these are one in $2,000 drones that they're putting up there and we're knocking down with multi-million dollar missiles. And you obviously can't continue that for a very long time because we're going to have to leave the ships pretty soon to get a resupply because you can't do much of those resupplies at sea. So this is a very issue, tough issue. And frankly, there's not an easy, good answer. But getting this war over is the primary one because that's the cause that's that's resulting in this uh, escalation. So the Red Sea blockade is, as we noted, uh, being characterized as, as an effort of solidarity with the people of Gaza, an effort to end the siege of Gaza um, and to end the bombardment of Gaza. You talk about a non-military solution to ending that particular conflict. It does seem like all the forces are aligned uh, toward it being in America's interest for the siege on Gaza to end. That then eliminates the necessity or the justification, if you think it's in bad faith, for the Red Sea blockade. And of course, the humanitarian benefits of that are evident. What's standing in the way of there being a resolution? Well, I mean, first and foremost, it's uh, Benjamin Netanyahu who is has absolutely rejected any possibility of a negotiated settlement in this war. He has set his country on a course emphatically and without hesitation to destroy Hamas militarily to bring peace to Israel. That's his stated objective. But, Bree, look, the, the reality is that's not going to work because you can't kill your way to peace. The more people they kill, the more these now over 20,000 innocent people have been killed, you see it's causing rifts even more so in Turkey. Uh, you see it more so in the United States. The, the the support for Palestine continues to grow, especially among the youth in this country. And President Biden can't continue to do, you know, to turn a blind eye to this and say he's not going to do anything. He's going to lose his own support. And eventually it could cause the U.S. to stop supporting Israel. This has to change whether Netanyahu wants to or not, because he won't achieve his goals militarily. And it could precipitate expanding the war. And then everybody loses. Well, what if the goal is, as so many Israeli officials have said at this point, not to eliminate Hamas per se, but to capture Gaza, to flatten Gaza, to, to claim Gaza as territory that can be settled by Israel and to ethnically cleanse, expel the 2.3 million people who live there already to neighboring uh, Arab countries, the Sinai Peninsula yeah. or what have you. I mean, does the impossibility of, of militarily defeating Hamas give rise to the likelihood that that is actually the more realistic objective uh, coming out of Israel? Well, well look, you, you have what's being said, and then you also have what's being done on the ground. And what's being said is that you have the president of the United States saying emphatically, two-state solution, two-state solution. We are not, you know, we are for that Palestinian people. We're not going to uh, you know, support them being ethnically cleansed or driven off the territory. You have the uh, Israeli government that's saying the same thing. Yes, we, we don't want to destroy them. We want them to have, you know, a, a governing, self-governing capacity, but it's only got to be after they're demilitarized and all that. But then you see on the ground what's happening and you see 
look, forget about all the words. You see systematically the, the ability to sustain life in the Gaza Strip is being wiped out. I mean, it's being completely obliterated. So whatever they're saying, the fact is that after this is done, how are they going to, the Palestinian people going to actually survive more than just in UN tents and refugee camps? Because they're, I mean, you're talking about water treatment facilities, electric facilities, you know, just buildings to live in, just apartment buildings, places to have food, you know, to restaurants. All the things you need to just exist are being wiped out. So it's unclear uh, exactly what really is the objective. But when you look at what's happening, it does open the door to that being a possibility. You, you said a, a moment ago that, uh, and you're, you're right, that Netanyahu um, has, you know, rejected um, calls for a permanent ceasefire. But, but of course, Hamas rejected the, an Egyptian plan recently, reportedly, that would have them relinquish power there in exchange for a permanent ceasefire. Um, th this is the frustration I have, and it seems that neither side really wants to end this conflict. So, <laughs> what are we to do about it? Yeah, that, that's that's true. There, there's no shortage of, of heap uh, to be placed on Hamas and their leadership for what they're doing. But here's what I think that we should do that we haven't tried yet diplomatically. We need to give the people of Palestine, and by we, I mean primarily the, the Israeli government, to give the people of Palestinian reason to turn against Hamas. There's other people, there's other leaders in, in, in the Palestinian uh, enclaves there in both the West Bank and in Gaza that could lead and say, look, we're going to support you so that you can lead your people in a good direction, but you have to reject Hamas because they're poison. They can't, they cannot be part of any settlement because they don't want a settlement. But if the people have reason to have a hope and something that they can say, yes, if we do this, we can live again, then there's a shot at that. But right now, there's not even a shot. And all we can do is to say the war is going to continue. And mm. it can't be okay that the war continues on and the Palestinian people keep dying at this unsustainable rate. That can't be the answer. Mm. Thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Always my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Pro-Palestinian protesters took to the streets and blocked entry into two of the country's largest airports and one of the busiest travel days of the year. Protesters blocked the entrance to New York's JFK International Airport and also California's LAX Airport yesterday morning to try and draw attention to the pro-Palestinian cause. Here's a quick look at the scene yesterday outside JFK. Now, after the events at JFK, New York City Mayor Eric Adams reportedly said the city is preparing to use robots, drones, and bomb-sniffing dogs to defend against pro-Palestine protesters for the New Year's, New Year's Eve ball drop. Adams added he is sure there will be attempts to disrupt the event because everyone looks for events like this if they want to do bad things. Hmm. The scene in America followed a grim Christmas in Gaza where disturbing images allegedly depict men and children stripped down to their underwear in the middle of a field on Christmas Day. Northwestern University professor Stephen Thrasher described the images as sexual violation of children plain as day, adding that Israel is showing off to the rest of the world that they can strip children down to their underwear in December, December on camera, humiliate them, kill them if they please on Christmas Day in the U.S., U.N., U.K., will do nothing to stop them. Following the horrifying images, a clip of a Palestinian Christian priest calling for solidarity with the Palestinian people made its rounds on the Internet. Let's take a look. Gaza today has become the moral compass of the world. 
Gaza was hell before October 7th, and the world was silent. Should we be surprised that they're silenced now? If you are not appalled by what is happening in Gaza, if you are not shaken to your core, there is something wrong with your humanity. And if we as Christians are not outraged by the genocide, by the weaponization of the Bible to justify it, there is something wrong with our Christian witness and we are compromising the credibility of our gospel message. Israel's actions over the holiday come as the country seemingly solidified its plan to oust Palestinians from the region. An article on antiwar.com alleges that Israel President Bibi Netanyahu is looking for countries to absorb Palestinians from Gaza, a narrative backed up by an article in the Jerusalem Post that asserts the northern Sinai Peninsula is an ideal location to develop a spacious resettlement for the people of Gaza. As friend of the show, Glenn Greenwald, put it, Israeli officials and media figures in Hebrew talk openly about how the real purpose of the war, the war that American taxpayers are paying for and arming, is to render Gaza uninhabitable so that Palestinians are forced to leave and Israel can take that land, a.k.a. ethnic cleansing. IDF spokesperson Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner had this to say when pressed on targeting areas, uh, the IDF targeting areas that are heavily populated by civilians, such as refugee camps, which of course happened over the Christmas holiday. Let's watch. I, I, don't, I, I don't doubt that, that Hamas are using uh, civilians to, to protect themselves. I, I guess my question again is whether that only means those civilians deserve even more uh, to be spared. Uh, it's not their choice necessarily to stay. And again, specifically as we talk about some of these refugee camps, some of the places people have escaped to in the past where they had nowhere else to go, is it uncomfortable for you uh, when there is collateral damage in areas like that, more so than uh, a few weeks ago? Where else should those people be going? I, I think it's, it, there's no comparison really, Wilf, if, if we're looking between the weeks of, that have passed and where we're going uh, as we move forward. Every civilian death, every civilian casualty uh, in this war is a, is a tragedy. It's a tragedy um, for the individuals. It's a tragedy for the family. It's a tragedy for the community. It's a tragedy, nevertheless, that Hamas brought on us. And in a surprise attack, they caused the most devastating attack on Israelis in the history of the state of Israel. And, and that is precisely why the paradigm needs to change. It's precisely why um, uh, we have no alternative. What would the alternative be? Not protect ourselves and hope Hamas don't do it again, despite them promising to do the 7th of October repeatedly. So from our perspective, the civilians need to be spared, absolutely. From our perspective, we are operating under the understanding and within accordance to the laws of armed conflict distinguishing between the civilians. That's why we're asking them to evacuate from specific locations where we intend, where we understand Hamas is operating from. Ooh, so there's a lot that obviously happened uh, over the few days of the holiday uh, that I've been, I know you were back yesterday. So it's a little overwhelming to get into the, into the segment. Uh, first of all, it's interesting that you hear from the Israeli official there at the end, a very similar narrative that we've been hearing from the beginning of the crisis. I think the difference is that now that there is just such an overwhelming amount of documentary evidence of not just the number of people have been killed, which has eclipsed uh, uh, 20,000 at this point, the scale of the destruction to the infrastructure and buildings in Gaza, with nearly 2 million people internally displaced at this point, um, targeting of uh, reports of sniper attacks with the two Christian women leaving the church shortly before the holiday, destruction of historical buildings, 
of religious significance, of multiple uh, world religions in Gaza, that people, I think, are less accepting of a narrative that Israel is doing everything it can to minimize civilian deaths. If you reflect on the ratios of civilian to target deaths um, over the last two and a half months or so in Gaza, it's rather stunning to realize that not only, as we discussed in the show, are they widely out of step in terms of civilian deaths, children deaths, all of those metrics, than any other uh, conflict in modern war history. But that even compared to the horrific attacks on October 7th, their ratio to target, uh, military target ratio, is worse than what we saw from Hamas, which obviously is a group that has none of the targeting sophistication and military sophistication of the Israeli army. So at that point, what, what do you say in response to Israel as they continue to say that we have no excuse, we have no alternative, rather, than to continue to cause all of this death and mayhem? What do you mean compared to the Hamas ratio yeah. of... Well, what did you mean by that? So even if you take the uh, IDF's numbers of how many uh, military officers were killed on October 7th versus how many civilians were murdered on October 7th in contravention of international law, that that ratio is a higher ratio of actual military targets killed, uh, you know, members of IDF, soldiers killed mm -hmm. on October 7th, compared to what Israel claims they have killed Hamas agents or Hamas members to civilians in Gaza over the last months. Right. I mean, the difference is that the civilians being killed in Gaza are collateral damage in these bombings meant to root out Hamas, whereas the people killed by Hamas were shot and stabbed and everything else in the, in the indiscriminately as part of the terrorist attack, right? It's... So there was a New York Times thing. report uh, over the weekend which actually rooted out that Israel was targeting civilians. So most recently, we just discussed in this read that over the Christmas holiday, uh, this refugee camp was shot. Um, the New York Times um, story showed that at least 200 times Israel bombed places that they had told civilians to evacuate to. I don't, I don't, if at this point, the New York Times is even reporting out that Israel is telling people to leave. Remember, this is the narrative we got at the beginning, that Israel is targeted, Israel is giving people warnings, they're dropping those uh, um, knock bombs on the roofs to give people an opportunity to leave, they're calling and letting them know it's the most civilian war that we've ever, uh, most um, uh, uh, habitable yeah, it, war we've ever seen. All of that has been thrown out the window. People have been saying, Palestinians have been saying since the beginning that that was never true. And now, after we've had over 20,000 people killed, the mainstream media is finally acknowledging that that is also not true. Yeah, I mean, there's no way around the fact that a tremendous number of civilians are dying given, given the demographics of Gaza, that it's overwhelmingly um, young people, it, it, an impoverished area, um, a densely populated area. There's simply no way to conduct a war against an organization hiding there without a tremendous number of civilian casualties. Maybe it's too many civilian casualties for the international community to accept that this is a, a good idea or a justified idea or even wise from Israel's own security standpoint, because think of all the people who will be, you know, the survivors of this are going to be even more inclined toward terrorism, I have to imagine. Um, that's a point that really resonates with me and, you know, makes me wonder what, where they think this ends and how this ends in a place that's actually better for Israel. But the fact remains that they seem totally committed to doing this. And I mean, I, I do want to drill down on a little bit of what you just said there, Robbie, because it absolutely is not true that this is the only way that Israel can do this. It is absolutely not true 
that Israel's hand is somehow forced to explicitly tell people, go to these areas, they're safe for civilians, and then drop tons of American-derived bombs on that very population. It is absolutely not true. Many of, uh, much of what's been reported that is so incredible over the last couple of weeks are sniper attacks. It's difficult to imagine anything more purposeful than a, a trained sniper from a distance pointing a gun at a mother and daughter, middle-aged and elderly mother and daughter, as Christian Palestinians as they leave a church to shoot the first one, and then as the second comes out to try to attend to her family member, shoot the second. There were reports from weeks ago when we were talking about Al-Shifa Hospital, I believe it was, about patients in the hospital being uh, shot by sniper fire through the window. We now have imagery, of, of, not just from over the holiday, obviously we had some more weeks ago, of Palestinian men who were recognized and identified from the photographs as civilians, stripped naked in the back of trucks, knelt in a way that is right, humiliating what, and incontrovertible. I, I of saw American footage law, just like that uh, from October law. 7th. A Hamas fighter um, throws a grenade into a densely, uh, to a building where people are hiding. The people run out and then they get shot by the Hamas fighter. Right, I've so seen exactly this I kind of thing. We completely agree that it is immoral and illegal. Yeah, and they're trying to kill those people. And in contravention <laughs> of, of international law to kill civilians. But why is it not immoral and illegal and a contravention of international law and worthy of condemnation for Israel, a state, to not only kill multitudes, magnitudes more innocent civilians with malice of forethought, but the, to be doing it with American funding? I mean, I condemn everyone engaging, all governments that are engaged in violence against others. Everyone should just stand down and live in peace. But we have to live in reality. And in reality, they're engaged in a, Israel's engaged, the state of Israel is engaged in a war against Hamas. And that's going to continue until Hamas is destroyed. Well, the background of that, the remember again that about half of those um, killed have been children alone so far. We're not even getting into the over fifty thousand people who have been. And it'll be more. Injured. And it'll probably be more. It'll be more until until until it's over. I mean, it, what, what else? What can I? What can I'm I do? Just, what can I'm one say? Just reporting some facts. Uh, not to mention over the fifty thousand that have been injured and the express statements that we've had throughout that are now being taken more seriously of Israeli officials who've been saying that the end goal is to move this population out of the region whatsoever, which is definitionally ethnic cleansing. Um, you know, what role does the American government have? And that is why that is the background of the protests that were the lead of our read today. Well, there's no one for and them. And there's this question of whether or not is there is there nothing nowhere that can be for done, them to go. Um, as you have articulated, or is in the middle of an election year, this an opportunity for people to put pressure on our government, without which this behavior from Israel uh, very much arguably could not uh, take place? Well, I'm not sure what, you know, blocking streets and messing with people's um, holiday commute does constructively to help the cause. I mean, maybe you could explain this to me. I don't understand why protesters engage in this, think that their cause then becomes more sympathetic or better liked. Aren't people just annoyed at the protesters then and, if anything, would think more disparagingly of their cause? Um, I don't know. I did see reporting of someone on the ground. Uh, this was relatively short-lived. It was only 40 or so people. And I did see reporting that at least one person who was um, obstructed in their effort to get to the airport said to the protesters that they supported them. Hmm. Um, this is the nature of civil disobedience. It often is very purposefully uh, inconvenient because, again, the backdrop of why people are motivated to do this is that they see um, a contemporary genocide rolling out, uh, an ethnic cleansing rolling out, and the public sphere, the likes of which 
I think we've never seen so viscerally because of the advent of social media and the ability to share social media clips from within the, the, the genocide zone. Um, and people feel like um, it's a small price to pay uh, to have some impact in raising awareness and forcing people to confront what our government is doing. But obviously people can be of two minds about that. More rising right after this. Special counsel Jack Smith is making moves in former President Trump's federal interference case. Now, NBC News reports that Smith is seeking to block him from making political arguments and referring to supposed conspiracy theories during the trial. Smith also asked the court to prohibit Trump from blaming law enforcement for the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. Now, as a reminder, Trump's claims that the election was rigged are not, in fact, true or stolen, for that matter. They have been debunked repeatedly. Some conservative commentators, commentators bristled at Smith's request, arguing that it was an attempt to keep Trump's trial date set for March 4th in the face of new evidence surrounding a federal undercover agent at the Capitol on January 6th. Journalist Julie Kelly noted on X that Smith asked the court to preclude the jury from hearing evidence about January 6th in a case specifically surrounding January 6th, as well as the potentially political nature of Trump's prosecution. Smith's request comes as the GOP primary seemingly continues to be Trump's to lose. The former president posted on Truth Social that he anticipates nomination rival Vivek Ramaswamy will drop out soon and endorse him, adding that Ramaswamy was a good man and not done yet. Per Rasmussen reports, Trump still holds a massive lead over his competition. A national telephone and online survey found that 51 percent of likely Republican primary voters would vote for Trump if the primary were held today, while former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley would get 13 percent and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie each get 9 percent of the vote. Businessman Vivek Ramaswamy has 1 percent of support. Mm. Vivek going to drop out with a mission accomplished banner. That, that poll, I got to say, is fascinating to me. I don't want to be a braggart, Robbie, or say I told you so. But I do recall in the wake of debate after debate, when all of the media was a Twitter about Vivek Ramaswamy and how Nikki Haley wasn't coming off well and how Vivek Ramaswamy was bringing energy with how he was attacking her for wearing high heels and not raising your children properly. And that's the fight Americans want to see. His polls have gone down consistently with every debate performance. While Nikki Haley, again, this is not a substantive compliment to either of them whose politics have nothing to do with anything that I'm interested in. But in terms of what Americans want, it really does feel not just like, because you said this before, not just like there's one Trump lane and Trump's in it, so Vivek has nowhere to go. But to the extent that he had much better poll numbers before, people who were in that Trump lane but liked him anyway, he's lost those voters at the same time that Nikki's been gaming. Yeah, I mean, I'll say what I said before, though. I think his goal really was to be to to be the surrogate for Trump on mm -hmm. the debate stage because Trump wouldn't deign to be involved. And uh, look, obviously, if Nikki Haley somehow comes out of this as the nominee, it will have been a ineffective strategy. So we'll yeah. Well, I, I don't that. think that's likely, but it is <laughs> fascinating to see her not just eclipse Vivek despite all of the attention he's been getting from the press, but eclipse. Ron DeSantis, who at what time, at one time in this, 
was polling well, I mean, in she's the 30s. plenty of attention from the press. I mean, she's getting probably the most favorable attention, um, more, much more favorable media attention than Ron DeSantis or Vivek Ramaswamy ever got. Well, we'll get into yeah, we've got more um, to talk hot, about hot her issues, in a minute. But I do want to discuss this. Uh, no, we, we should talk about the uh, Jack Smith news. Um, I don't know. I find a lot of this somewhat troubling um, to try to keep out of the courtroom many of Trump's um, ideas, theories about the election and January 6th and law enforcement not doing a good job on January 6th. Um, that seems, look, you, you, can disagree, you can disagree with it, but that seems relevant to the trial. That seems like not information I would, I would, you know, muffle the jury's ears so that they could not hear, which is what Jack Smith's trying to do here. Doesn't that seem a little illiberal to you? Um, I don't, it's not that it's illiberal. I think that the, um, the attorneys are wrong to argue that it's not probative, probative of guilt or innocence. That's the argument that they're making. Um, that uh, that the political claims that Donald Trump is making about what, this being a witch hunt in an effort to get him not in in, in office, it's not dispositive, obviously. But uh, but if if if you believe that there is a the motivation for this is not in fact the letter of the law and what the factual record says about what Donald Trump did, did or didn't do, but trumped-up charges that are driven by a desire to undermine the will of the Democratic electorate, then that obviously goes to the validity of the underlying claim. Moreover, I don't know that it especially helps prosecutors when most people don't believe that the election was stolen. Trump election deniers did not do well in the midterm elections. Go ahead and let Trump say in the courtroom if he wants to say, I think I'm here because it's a witch hunt, I'm not responsible for any of my actions, and also Joe Biden shouldn't have been president for the last three years. If that's the argument that he wants to make, I'm not entirely sure that that helps him. But the more important point here is that, yeah, no, I agree. I, I, I yeah. actually, imagine this for any other case. Imagine this was Eugene Debs being thrown in jail um, it, you know, in the early 20th century right. because he's a communist and because there was a political agenda out to make sure that he couldn't run for president or to, to thwart his ability to run for president. Do we really want to ignore the background behind a lot of these prosecutions? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, in this document, it's just Jack Smith and his team over and over again saying, well, this isn't relevant. They shouldn't be able to hear this. I'm like, well, look, at, at, on some level, the jury gets to decide that. The jury gets to decide if this changes their impression of Trump's guilt under the underlying charges. Let, I mean, Trump should have every right to argue, uh, uh, again, especially because part of this prosecution has to do with the literal events on January 6th, in addition to everything that came before it. So it, it seems to me highly relevant if he wants to point out, and and if he's wrong, and they, then they can challenge him on it. They could say, no, actually, the police were perfectly equipped to deal with this, and we, there's no evidence of, of, uh, of uh, undercover agents doing it. Like, they can try to argue that side if, if that's what they think, if they have evidence for that. But to just take that out of the discussion, even as on some level that is what Trump is facing, was being charged, it's not the whole charge, but it's part yeah. of it. It seems, that seems totally unfair to me. That's another reason I think this is, makes no sense. The bulk of the charge and the enormity of what has transgressed is the argument that Trump affected a fraud by conspiring with a number of other Republican officials around the country to draft, sometimes in the cover of night, <laughs> you know, slates of fake electors that could be submitted to Mike Pence with the goal of him saying, oh, gosh, there's so many electors mm -hmm. that have been submitted. Who knows what I can do about this? I got to throw it to the House, which could then, because of the numbers and the demographic distribution of the House, elect Donald Trump. That's the scheme. And to the extent that we're arguing over what the police officers did on the day of 1-6, when that is 
the tiniest fraction of the crime that Donald Trump is being accused of here, I think really misses the forest for the trees and suggests to me that the, the prosecution is still overly focused on what the Democratic Party has been focused on. Which is despite the fact litigating that the, the events of January 6th. Exactly. Yes. Despite the fact that the indictment wasn't. The indictment had a much more substantive focus to it. So I don't I don't know yeah. if this is the media picking up on this. Maybe this isn't a big part of the, uh, the prosecution's case. Maybe this is just the media picking up on some motion practice that they're they're turning into a story that is really not a focus of Jack Smith per se. But I don't think this helps. This does not help Democrats or justice or whatever you want to call it make the case against Donald Trump to repeatedly drill down and focus on the day January 6th. Yeah, uh, in, in this filing, they say, well, a bank robber cannot, this is this is the analogy they use, a bank robber cannot defend himself by blaming the bank security guards for failing to stop him. But, but, but this, is the, this is what we're arguing about. This is what we're, like, Donald Trump's side is saying, it was not, I, I did not, there was not a bank robbery. I did not advise them to rob a bank. And in fact, when they went into the bank, they weren't stopped at several, again, you can dispute this. You can say this is a mischaracterization, but it, it goes to the heart of the matter on some level. To, to say that that is beyond debate, it, it seems to really be trying to build, uh, trying to hobble the jury in a way that they could only convict Trump on, on that charge. It, it seems totally unfair to me. And uh, we'll see what the judge has yeah, to look, say about I, it. I do think there's something to that, but I, even that analogy, you could strain it. I, obviously, I don't, again, yeah. agree with Donald Trump's position here, but you could strain it and say, if I own a bank, I put all the money out on the counter, I leave the doors open and take all the personnel out yeah. of the bank, and some civilian walks in and sees stacks of cash, is it a crime for them to say, well, maybe the bank, the bank is clearly offering up money, so mm -hmm. let me take it. That's the position of some of the people who yeah. entered the Capitol who feel like they were ushered in and allowed in by the police officers, and in some cases escorted by police officers. But again, that's a good argument for the people who've been charged and arrested and imprisoned for trespassing at the Capitol. I, that that has so little to nothing to do with what Donald Trump has been charged with. Well, but I know, but he's, like they're trying to stop show. him from. I, sh sh fair enough, but they're trying to stop him from talking I, about I it. Agree. I agree. All, all of the really sides show that the yeah. objection should be that this is not a defense. This is not material to the the, the charges right. that are being lev levied against you right now. Right. Not that you actually did the big. You know, the, not yeah. the, not the substance of the big robbing analogy because that's not the. The kind events of, of the day here. draw focus because they were. They made for good television, frankly. And right. Democrats seem obsessed with them. The Democratic Party right. seems totally obsessed with them. It was it was the optics. It was yeah. the lack of civility. <laughs> More rising right after this. In a jarring reversal of U.S. foreign policy, the Biden administration seems to openly acknowledge that the war in Ukraine will end with diplomacy and lost territory from Ukraine, and not through total Ukrainian victory. The White House gave the updated policy aim to Politico and argued this had been America's position throughout the conflict. However, as friend of the show Zed Jelani posted on X, arguing Ukraine would have to give up land is something which, if you said it six months ago, made you Putin's right-hand man. The news comes as America's European allies encourage the U.S. to send more military aid while praising aid sent so far. Here's a German government spokesperson saying just that. Die US-Regierung hat ein weiteres Paket an Militärhilfe im Umfang von 250 Millionen US-Dollar freigegeben. Das haben wir zur Kenntnis genommen und begrüßen die weitere Unterstützung der USA für die Ukraine. Was das Weitere angeht, da vertrauen wir darauf, dass die USA, wie von Präsident Biden angekündigt, die Ukraine auch weiter unterstützen wird. Also on Ukraine's list of concerns, 
pension payments. The Financial Times reports that without Western aid, Kiev might have to delay paying wages for 500,000 civil servants and 1.4 million teachers, as well as benefits for 10 million pensioners. Reportedly, the Ukrainian government is racing to cobble together money to pay for public services and benefits after promised funding from its closest allies failed to come through. It needs $37 billion in external support next year. Here to discuss the situation in Ukraine and what the West should do, in front of the show and military expert Daniel Davis, and you can catch his show, Deep Dive, on YouTube. Welcome back once again. Thanks, Robbie. Good to be here. So it's, it's funny that we're arriving. I mean, funny is the wrong word for it. It's, it's uh, yeah. notable that we're arriving at a moment that you long predicted on this very show where the even the very pro-Ukrainian resistance uh, kind of figures, pundit class, uh, government, military experts are conceding that the only way out of this situation is negotiation and that that negotiation might be painful for Ukraine, but it will you know, not result in the end of the Ukra entire Ukrainian nation. It will just be some kind of cessation of territory. Yeah, <laughs> Robbie, this is really painful to, to be here and now. You know, now we're closing on the two-year mark of this war when we had a deal almost in the bag in, in March, April of 2022, barely a month into the war. The outlines of a negotiated settlement were on the table. Both sides generally agreed to. And then it was sabotaged either by uh, Boris Johnson or, or by the U.S., depending on who you want to believe what actually happened. All we know is that it was absolutely rejected. At that time, Ukraine could have had even Mariupol was still in their control at that time. All these cities that have been wiped out would all have been in their control. And I think I did say on your show a couple of times that the longer this goes, the less territory they have and the worse their negotiated outcome will be. But there will be one because Ukraine didn't have the military capacity to win. That should have been self-evident. But now then, it's, despite all the spin and all the pretending that it was otherwise, now you're left with the reality that's finally sinking in that we're going to have to do a negotiated settlement. And unfortunately, that's going to be on much worse terms for Zelensky than it would have been otherwise. But, but so far, Zelensky still isn't saying he's going to do that. He's still talking about his big plans for 2024. So we, we got a bit of a problem that's going to have to be solved pretty quickly. I understand the U.S. incentive here to, quote, weaken Russia, as they admitted very early on into this conflict. But I do wonder what Zelensky thought the endgame of this was going to be. Were there what kind of promises were extended um, behind closed doors or tacitly that made Zelensky and Ukrainians feel like this was a proxy war that would ultimately benefit them when the reality of Russia being a nuclear power with a military that could not be defeated by Ukraine alone and with the United States having understandable reluctance to engage in World War III in a direct conflict with another nuclear power. I mean, what on earth could possibly have been on the minds of Ukrainians as a potential endgame here that's better than what we're seeing now? Now, it's really hard for me to improve on what you just said. That you, that one dialogue there, you really laid out the whole thing in pretty stark, clear language. Uh, historians are going to have to tell us what was actually being said behind the scenes at various points. Uh, we can't know that for sure. But I, I think that probably the biggest issue is that Zelensky and many in the West, and I'm talking some retired three- and four-star U.S. generals, frankly, who have been feeding this narrative, 
that they've been thinking with their heart and and not with their mind. And and look, I get it. Their country was invaded. I mean, there, there's every reason for them to hate the Russians and to hate what was done and to want to reverse it. That's that's clear and uh, and uh, unquestioned. But you also have to have the reality involved here. It doesn't matter what you want. It matters what you can do and what's reasonable and what's probable. And and the the military balance has been going in Russia's favor, has been in Russia's favor since February 2024, uh, 22. Even when they made these horrible, egregious mistakes in the first nine months of war, they're big enough to overcome those mistakes. Ukraine is not. And now that they've lost an entire generation of men, men they're going to need to to recover their country and to move back into the future. And they've got to stop the bleeding right now. And ending the war on negotiated settlement is the absolute best they can get at this point. And I'm telling you, if they don't agree to it now, they're going to lose even more territory before it's all over. Let's say your perspective was, uh, from an American foreign policy perspective, Russia is a is a foe, a geopolitical foe. Um, yeah, Ukraine is not going to defeat Russia, but we want to make Russia hurt. We want to punish them for having done this. So we'll, you know, we'll send some money, some arms to Ukraine. It's their people dying in this effort, not ours. And even if it's not going to work out, let's say the goal is just to punish Russia, to hurt them a little bit, maybe a lot for as long as we conceivably can, and now that's all over. From that perspective, how much damage did this actually inflict on Russia economically, militarily, et cetera? Robbie, if we had ended this war at about the one-year mark, uh, or even at the, the, in the, the February or March-April period of 2022, as mentioned a minute ago, Russia would have been harmed. They would have been significantly damaged. But because we didn't end it, now that Russia has their industry cranking on all cylinders, they're producing new weapons of war that they didn't even have before. They have burned off all of this chaff that they had at the beginning that were these terrible leaders that they had. Now that they have experienced leaders in, in large-scale operations, they're now getting stronger than they were prior to February, not weaker. So again, the longer we go, the worse for our own uh, interests are because Russia is going to be stronger conventionally afterwards. So we need to turn this off quickly before they get even stronger. Lieutenant Colonel, thank you so much as always for joining us today. Thanks a lot. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley may need to crack open a history book and flip to the chapter about the Civil War. The presidential hopeful gave a meandering answer when asked about the cause of the war without once mentioning slavery as a crucial factor. Let's watch. What was the cause of the United States Civil War? Well, don't come with an easy question or anything. I mean, I think the cause of the Civil War was basically how government was going to run, the freedoms and what people could and couldn't do. What do you think the cause of the Civil War was? I'm sorry? I'm not running for president. I, I, I, I wanted to see uh, your That's a good thing on the cause of the Civil War. I mean, I think it always comes down to the role of government and what the rights of the people are. And we, I will always stand by the fact 
that I think government was intended to secure the rights and freedoms of the people. It was never meant to be all things to all people. Government doesn't need to tell you how to live your life. They don't need to tell you what you can and can't do. They don't need to be a part of your life. They need to make sure that you have freedom. We need to have capitalism. We need to have economic freedom. We need to make sure that we do all things so that individuals have the liberties so that they can have freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom to do or be anything they want to be without government getting in the way. Thank you. And in, in the year 2023, it's astonishing to me that you answer that question without mentioning the word slavery. What do you want me to say about slavery? No, um, uh, you've answered my question. Thank you. Next question. After facing some backlash, Haley uh, fixed her comments uh, about this omission, saying the Civil War was, in fact, about slavery. Now, journalist Glenn Greenwald called out the media's reaction to Haley's comments, saying on X, if any other candidate refused to say slavery and glorified the Civil War this way, CNN would have declared a national racism emergency. But because D.C. elites are so desperate for Nikki Haley, watch CNN blame the voter for asking, then say her imperfect answer doesn't matter. Here is what Greenwald was referring to. Now, it's not your average town hall question, but she, she did seem surprised by it. And the voter, as you could hear there, called her out for not mentioning slavery. What do you make uh, of that answer? Yeah, if I were her, that would have been pretty easy to just say that and move on. But it's also, I think, pretty clear that that voter was kind of trying to catch her and saying something that would potentially make her less appealing to those independent voters in New Hampshire that she's going to rely on so heavily. So this was an, an easy question to answer. I wish she had answered it using the easy word, say slavery. There's a disagreement in our country about it. Um, but ultimately, I don't think it's actually going to hurt her standing one way or another with Republican primary voters at this point. All right. So the right answer, of course, is uh, northern aggression causes this, that tyrant <laughs> Lincoln. So this is this is this you have to go joking, all the way if you're, you're going there. This is going to the core of it. I mean, sure, the criticism is not just of Nikki Haley. I think whatever Nikki Haley says or done does is unlikely she's going to be president. Who who really cares? The question is, do we live in a country where? Including slavery in an answer about what the Civil War was about is alienating to a significant part of the Republican or independent audience. And is that really the, the question that we should be asking and probing as to why that is the case? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Is it alienating? I, I, this was in New Hampshire. It's one of the northern states. I think you could have just said slave. I mean, the answer she gave would satisfy no one because it was just, it was so like, she wasn't saying anything real and it was like just designed to avoid the question. Um, you know, either you can go all the way and and say that um, that it was about the violations of states' rights and the North slowly choking the South's ability to govern itself, um, or you can just you know say the, the the answer that they wanted you to say, which is uh, right. slavery well, and states' rights or something let, like that. Let's take a little journey back into history. Um, someone pulled Mississippi's secession document, in which they state very clearly. This, this is after the, after a first sentence, which says we're leaving the union. The second sentence in Mississippi's declaration of immediate causes, which induce and justify the cessation secession of the state of Mississippi from the federal union, they say, our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world. 
Its labor supplies the product, with co which constitutes by far the largest and most important portions of commerce on the, of the earth. These products are peculiar to the climate verging on the tropical regions, and by an imperious law of nature, none but the black race can bear exposure to the tropical sun. These products have become necessities of the world, and a blow at slavery is a blow at commerce and civilization. That blow has been long aimed at the institution and was at the point of reaching its consummation. There was no choice left to us but submission to the mandates of abolition or dissolution of the union, whose principles have been subverted to work at our ruin. They wanted to continue slavery. That's, I'm not, I'm not and, arguing with and, you. And not only that, they wanted to continue slavery in service of some of the things that Nikki Haley said there that America is trying to preserve. She said this is about capitalism. This is about uh, America should be, government should be about supporting people's ability to, um, to, to have freedoms. To do, to do what they want to do. And I think that what's so frustrating by people who are not, to people who are not conservative is this framing of freedoms always excludes the question of freedoms for who. While making an argument about government and how it should be in service of capitalism, the people who wanted slavery also believe that to be the case, which is why they wanted to leave the federal government. But in their view, the freedom of them to own slaves and to do what they thought only black people could do was produce this, these, these products that the world needed, but only black labor could produce, was the, the core, primary, immediate driving purpose of them leaving the union. So yes, we do live in a country where I think saying that out loud is stigmatizing, despite how true it is, that there are a lot of people who do call it the war of uh, Northern aggression, who don't see the civil war, to, to see, who maintain the civil war is about states' rights without asking the question, states' rights to do what exactly? And there is something frustrating about Nikki Haley's persistence here and tiptoeing around those people when giving an answer in New Hampshire, a very northeastern state that had absolutely nothing to do with the Confederacy. Yeah, she just should have said slavery. I, yeah. I mean, what else do I want to say? So another part of this is that, you know, I don't think Nikki Haley is wrong to fear blow, blowback, largely because um, Tucker Carlson, for one, has been bringing up a singular tweet that she did in the wake of the 2020 protests in which she said, and I was trying to pull it up um, uh, maybe I can find it uh, before the segment ends. But a rather anodyne statement about how this is like a moment of reckoning and we should all look to see, mm -hmm. you know, what, what's going on in our society that George Floyd could be killed on camera in this horrific way. And after that, she's condemned the protest. She does, she's no friend of Black Lives Matter. But Tucker Carlson has been trying to use that tweet, that one tweet. He's brought it up now multiple times to paint her as somehow... Um, like the, the queen of Black Lives Matter, who's overly sympathetic to violence, BLM mobs, and all of that sort of thing. So if that one tweet gets you that level of pylon from someone who wants to undermine your political efforts, who just doesn't like you, like Tucker Carlson, then yeah, I think that she was not wrong to fear retribution. But what does it mean that there's a Republican base out there, or an independent base, or some base of Americans out there who would condemn her, who would punish her? for simply saying that, yes, the Civil War had a lot to do with slavery. Yeah, I mean, there's also the taking down the, what was it, the Confederate flag mm -hmm. or from some, I think that's actually the animating event. Look, I don't really care for Nikki Haley. The, my beef with her is not along these issues, so I don't really, you know, care what, it, she's been accused of endorsing, like, the Black Lives Matter riots and property destruction. Yeah, that's the it looks to me like she never actually <laughs> did any of that. Um, she clearly thinks that she is perceived as being out of step with 
conservative culture, thus, I guess, this kind of effort to avoid saying that. I'm not actually sure she would get in trouble for saying that it was about slavery. That seems like really expecting people to turn on you for a pretty um, benign statement. You know, I think you could say that. I mean, I, I don't—I mean, she was—you could also— there are other things one can say about the circumstances leading to the Civil War. It doesn't seem really important to talk about, which is maybe why there was a level of a, a, annoying that that question got asked, because why? And I'm sure the person asking it probably was a Democratic plant, as alleged. But, you know, you have to be prepared for that kind of thing. So. I mean, it's New Hampshire. It's a state with a lot of independent voters. I don't know if it's a Democratic plant so much as that it's probably a person. Okay, it was somebody that was trying to get Nikki Haley in trouble. Yeah. A and she fell for it. A, a person... Like, it, it, it, this feels a little like um, when Democrats argue that Russiagate did posts that made the election outcome for Trump in 2016. And then the post they'll point to is something that says, like, America has a history with racism. And they're like, oh, black people were deluded by Russia into thinking America has a history of racism. It's like, well, right. it's a true statement. Either you can confront the true statement and deal with it, or you can't. If if people are saying true things that make you look bad, that's on you, bub. You can't you can't externalize blame on that one. And this, you know, Haley Frame, she said, well, this is a this is a hard question, like you know, sarcastically, oh, hit me with an easy question, why don't you? It actually was an easy question. It's an easy question in a country, in a world, and in a political environment where you can say honest historical facts about the things that happened in American history. Honest historical facts about the war that took more American lives than any war in American history. But we don't live in that country. And at the same time that she's prevaricating on that stage, we have people like Christopher Rufo and Ron DeSantis who are actively trying to pull African-American history, Amer which is American history, it from, took, took from schools so that no one will Whoa. read what I just read into the record here about what Mississippi's secession document actually says. Nobody is trying to stop you from reading about Mississippi's succession document. Robbie. I, what are you? No. The, the, real, the reality about the Civil War, it has been taught, is being taught, and will continue to be taught. There's not, we're not like run our, our it's not Confederates planning our school books. Um, there, I mean, there was, I'm, I'm surprised you have this, it, it sounds, I mean, the North did like, I mean, you could say that was fine. They were they needed to do that, and this was necessary to end the institution of slavery, which is horrible. The hundreds of thousands of deaths, the invasion and conquest of the South, the like burning of city after city, uh, a scorched earth policy of totally destroying the Confederate armed forces, killing and capturing their leaders. Um, like that, that's fine. That's what we did. There's we can't like examine. I mean, I, I think it's. Fine to wonder if that was like the greatest course of action or the ideal way to bring about the end of slavery, particularly because the North invented the draft and the purpose of doing it, which is, in my view, also a form of slavery, that one that then persisted for like another hundred years. Forcing people to go die in warfare is about the is the most objectionable thing I could possibly think of. Weird. I think 400 years of chattel slavery have been ritualized. If uh, the government can rape, make you die, um, the, if they can make do you, you think die, slave owners can kill their slaves not, and no, didn't I'm kill their saying, slaves. I'm saying, it, I'm saying this is a form of slavery. I'm not saying slavery is not slavery. You said it, you just said that the draft is the worst thing that you could think of, and I'm and we're having a conversation about chattel slavery. You in do not. If the government can make you go die on a foreign battlefield, you don't own yourself in any conceivable way. So that's why I don't romanticize the North. You have a right to get married insult. if you're at a war. 
If you're drafted, you have a right to keep your own children, not have them literally sold away from you as property. You have a right to wages for I your labor. You had a right to a GI bill. one kind of slavery is the right way to get... I, Robbie, you can make your point without making a comparison between the draft and chattel slavery, which was a multi-generational pogrom against millions of Africans who were brought across the Atlantic and kept for hundreds of years without a single right in the land. Very bad. Shouldn't have done any of it. Should not have enslaved people in the course of ending it. And in fact, it is obviously prohibited by the same amendment to our Constitution that end slavery should have applied to that draft as well. But All right, I, think I don't like people. I don't like people dying. Um, I don't like people being enslaved. I don't want any of this. And I don't know what we're arguing about at this point. <laughs> Me either. What? So you support the draft? I'm, I support not comparing the draft to chattel slavery. Okay, so you support what, the invasion of the South and the killing of hundreds of thousands of people and the burning of all their cities? To that free was my ancestors? Hell yeah, Robbie! Okay, we found a war you can get excited about. The, yes, total destruction until they surrender. Very interesting. So, so let me, when, you talk, when we're talking about Gaza, you say, well, if, if Hamas will just surrender, then we don't have to have a war anymore. Exactly. Well, the South, the South just released the slaves. They wouldn't have to have a civil war Exactly. Over it. And they destroyed every city and dis every armed force until they achieved achieve that outcome. That's yeah. what I'm saying. No, you have a problem with this yeah. as applied to any other conflict, but not this one. The difference is, Robbie, that you ignore the fact that 2.3 million Palestinians have been kept in an open-air prison for decades after 700,000 of them that lived and were indigenous to the land now called Israel were driven out in an ethnic cleansing event in 1948 at the founding of Israel. Subsequently, they were living under those chattel conditions with a blockade where Israel wouldn't even let them have chocolate. They have to have special passes and checkpoints like apartheid South Africa to get from one point to another. They were being kept on a starvation diet. They were not given access to medicine, food, and they were ritualistically, routinely the lawn was mowed, where hundreds of Palestinians were kept on uh, They put on terrorists yearly. in charge of their government. Those terrorists attacked the state Who's of Israel. Benjamin Israel Netanyahu? is now Israel is now <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm, continuing this action until it defeats them, just as the North did to the South in the Civil Look, War. I, I if you'd been around then, I don't know. To be consistent, I think you'd have to be saying, "No, they should. They should hold back. They should permanent ceasefire. Permanent ceasefire." That would be ridiculous what? What? because they were going to. Would you have said that in the Civil War circumstance? Wait, first of all, you're dramatically, I wasn't going to touch this because this is going long and not the point, but you're dramatically now mischaracterizing. You said they're taking, they're taking, they won't let them read the Missouri secession document in schools anymore. It was Mississippi. Whatever it was. Um, what I was going to say was that it was beside the point, but you're dramatically mischaracterizing how the Civil War was handled. While slaves got nothing, slave owners were literally paid reparations and given the, the cost of their losses and made whole during the war. And after a very brief period where it looked like there would be some semblance of enforced equality in the South, it went out the door after Lincoln's death. And we had a very brief period where we actually had a, a black senators elected and the like in the South. And then we had some, a, a, a pogrom of of post-war life and indentured servitude and, grim, and Jim Crow laws that were almost as bad as the slavery itself, which lasted up until the civil rights era when my parents were born. So, um, excuse me, this is, this, is not a, this is not a historical abstraction, although for people who don't read 
you know, who live in Florida, very soon it might just be an abstraction as they're dis disallowed from actually taking African-American classes at these state no one... schools. Go ahead. Um, but this is really real. And I do think it's very telling that the same people who I think would, put, would likely probably defend uh, the South in the Civil War, a lot of the people who aren't understanding why the cause of freedom is so important for Palestinians, it's so important for black people, because fundamentally there are some inalienable rights which are in our Constitution, but which were not evenly applied to all human beings in the United States of America, because black people under the law were not considered to be full human beings, and I'm according saying, to our Constitution. And I'm saying it's totally in inconsistent, your view on whether is the correct course of action for a government to invade another area seeking the total elimination and destruction of an enemy government the and then imposing not, new conditions on it. The North was... Gaza... Israel is not seeking the total elimination of, an, of a, of a Hamas. government. Hamas is the government of the area! Israel is in... I don't know how many experts have to, to go on TV and say this. Israel is doing a, a genocidal campaign against no, they the are people not. of Gaza. No, they are not. They are not. They that is killed, not true. It is 100% true. Well, it's not. They have killed over 200,000 people, half of which are children. They have killed 11,000 children. 20,000. Sorry, sorry 20,000 children. 11, half of them, 11,000 of them are children. They have bombed almost every residential building in Gaza, churches, schools, universities, so that nobody ha can go back. They have uh, ex explicitly stated a plan of ethnically cleansing them to either Arab countries in the region or to the Sinai Peninsula specifically. They are planting literal flags and at the same time their kill ratio of actual members of Hamas to civilians is lower than the, what the terrorists did on October 7th. This is not a pogrom, this is not an effort to get rid of Hamas. And if you are, some, are believing that and repeating that at this point, I don't know what to tell you. If they are after Hamas, they're the most ineffectual, inept, ridiculous army in the world, and they shouldn't get a cent more of American dollar, and nobody should take them seriously. By contrast, we had a country called the United States of America, that half of which decided that they were willing to leave the Union in order to maintain the institution of slavery, and we fought a war to end it. They did not kill, they just randomly do sniper attacks and kill oh Confederate soldiers. Oh my God, soldiers. Brianna, that is ridiculous. They burned cities down. They killed half the entire uh, uh, population of military sir, uh, uh, age men. There were all sorts of atrocities committed. It's fine. It's warfare. Oh. It happens. I'm not saying wait, I'm against wait, it. Or it's unjustified. They, but it is warfare. Robbie, and military? that's how warfare goes. Robbie, they killed military men? Wow, I wish they were killing military men in Gaza, but they- This is warfare. It is bloody, it is destructive. Robbie, you, they blow Robbie, up things, you burn them down. They specifically said, how many Israeli officials have to get on TV and say, oh, they're all Hamas. Everyone's a likely target. If you had smartphones back then, it would look the same way. It wouldn't, because not That's that not many true. people- That's not true. It's just, I, Robbie, I, I, look, I don't have to finish this conversation with you. Because you're representing a viewpoint that is like nobody's. And so we can, I'm happy to, it's your read. Go ahead and end the segment. I don't need to argue with you. I'm representing a viewpoint that's nobody's. Yes, I don't need to sit and argue with you that actually um, the Civil War was much more cruel and that um, the North was worse than the South and the literal, to the South and the literal genocide that we're seeing unfold well, in front of our eyes. Well, that's not an interesting word in my mouth. I'm not saying that. You can feel free to clarify and wrap at your leisure. Okay. I think that does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, Jessica Burbank and Amber Duke will be back to take the baton for Rising Fridays, and we'll be back with you in the new year. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Take care.